Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At bluenile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Get your news in less than three minutes, three times per day with the Al Jazeera News Updates. Just ask your home device to play the news by Al Jazeera or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. So fuck, Jen. Yeah. Um, responding weirdly, we don't usually do this. This is a pre-roll message um, acknowledging what's happened since we taped today's show. Of course, this um, insurrection in D.C., this, this, these thugs, this mob... Uh, call it an attempted coup. Jen, I'm, I'm at a loss for the right swear. Uh, it's sort of like I need something that's 50% holy shit and 50% yeah, no shit. And, and, and words and expressions and swears are failing me right now. We're going to have to start mining German again. The Germans must have something for this. But um, what we'll do now is we still live in a sovereign country that has its own issues and problems. There's still a global pandemic and nothing that's happened today in Washington has really changed anything that we commented on in the show that we made for everyone today. So let's let's hear shortcuts. Um, and then uh, I believe we'll get a little bit into what happened in Washington and the media coverage thereof. We'll get into that in your duly noted. Yes. Stay tuned. Hey, Jen Gerson. Oh, hi, Jesse. Publisher of the Breakout Success Newsletter, The Line. Welcome back to Shortcuts. It's been a while. Yeah, well, we're getting there. We're getting there. Got some time. <laughs> On today's show, Jen, shelter in place, more like swelter in Greece. Am I right? Yeah, that's good. That's good. Thank you. Also, why journalists don't care about the fate of Julian Assange. Good to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. This episode of Shortcuts is brought to everybody by Matthew Kelly, Zachary Weiss, Ryan Parker, Abigail Clark, Nadra, Hugo Lazon, Jerome Chateauvert, and Jeremy Caposi. Hello, my name is Jeremy Caposi. I'm an illustrator from Toronto, Canada. I support Canada Land because the sound of Jesse's voice helps my newborn twins fall asleep. Thanks, Jesse. Bring back taste buds. Good evening on this first Monday back after a Christmas holiday where we were, all of us, tethered by the pandemic. However, certain politicians didn't let COVID or their conscience keep them home. Doug Ford will begin a new year with a new finance minister by his side. Jason Kenney admits his first attempt at addressing MLAs and staffers who traveled outside the country over the holidays didn't quite cut it. Uh, I was disappointed. 
uh, to find of uh, two of our uh, caucus members who traveled. Jen, um, I want to pitch to you my comedy screenplay. Let's go for it. You're very funny. It's about a workaholic dad named Rod Phillips, <laughs> played by, I don't know, Jim Carrey. Well, we'll try for Jim Carrey. We'll, we'll probably end up getting Jerry D. But this is the screenplay. Here's the premise. Okay. Rod is killing it in his day job as Ontario's finance minister. But back home, he has lost touch with his adorable toe-headed daughter, Zoe. He, he, he realizes he's been working so hard, he barely knows his own daughter. That's very sad. So in a Hail Mary move, he books a family vacation to St. Bart's. But here's the twist. There's a global pandemic. Womp, womp, womp. And nobody back home could know that Rod is actually away from work and he's on the beach. So, you know, there's these constant comic set pieces like he's he's zooming into calls with cabinet, but he, he's got like a suit and a necktie on. But uh, under the waist, he's actually on a surfboard. He's literally like riding a monster wave. He's got to mm-hmm. hide it. Then things heat up. After a series of scenes like that, the premier and the deputy premier and whoever else has to die, they all die of COVID and Rod's next in line to be premier. But as he's sworn in in the Zoom ceremony, there's like a conga line forming uh, behind him. And I don't know, a volcano erupts. Is there a volcano on St. Bart? This is a little bit too CanCon for me. I think what we need to go with more of a the thick of it style approach. <laughs> oh, you want something dry. I don't want that. I want like Weekend at Bernie's meets National Lampoon's Vacation. And, uh, you know, in the end, the farce comes crashing down around him. He loses his dream job, but he wins back the heart of little Zoe. What do you think? Brilliant. Except except what I think what makes this story extra relatable and extra funny is the fact that it's St. Bart's. It's not even that he goes to like some uh, terrible, all-inclusive club med in the yeah. Dominican or some someplace that like ordinary people could afford to go. Because, I mean, you need money to go to St. Bart's. You, you actually need to be pretty bloody well off to afford a vacation there so that's that's what is the extra little spice in the zinger yeah i mean what the fuck what do you make like i guess there is a bit of a backlash gem where people are saying um i don't know is this a witch hunt are we being fair uh is the media being fair like we've asked every elected official the media has i asked every elected official in the country if they left the country during the holidays is, is this fair okay so I will give that argument a tiny bit of due in the sense that I do think that not all people fleeing the country in the midst of the Christmas holidays is equal. Like if you are fleeing the country in order to see a dying relative or you went to a you know a small memorial like the two liberal uh, mm-hmm. um, uh, MPs, I don't think that's such a big deal. Likewise, you know, so, like here in Alberta, we had uh, one cabinet minister who apparently, you know, drove to her vacation property just to do some maintenance and then drove back home. I don't really care. Like that doesn't strike me as that big a deal. But for everybody else who went to Hawaii or Mexico or St. Bart's, well, they told the rest of us that we couldn't so much as have our families over for fucking Christmas. Go fuck yourselves. No, they deserve, they deserve every single little bit of contempt and derision, every single thing they have coming to them right now, they deserve. I feel like this works on so many levels. I'm so happy about this line of interrogation from the press. First of all, on the level of just like, you're fucking kidding me. Like I made these personal sacrifices and, and you told me to make them. 
and then you went off on vacation to Hawaii? Fuck you. But there is a practical element to this. Oh, totally. Nobody's coming down on these people because they personally represent some kind of substantive risk of spreading COVID. That's not the point. And this is why a lot of them and their attempts to dodge by saying, oh, I socially isolated and I took all the precautions, completely missed the point. The point is, when you're in a position of elected leadership, you have to model the behaviors that you want your constituency to um, copy. And if you don't do that, then you cease to be kind of a representative of a we, and you start to be kind of a, a tyrannical leader who's just imposing these rules and dictates on the people whom you lead yeah. um, without being willing to make the sacrifices. And that has a practical effect. And the effect is, as the people of a democratic society, we just go, well, fuck you then. If you don't take this seriously, then why should I? It lends a tremendous amount of credibility to the people who think that this whole thing is a conspiracy by the elites. Right. Mm -hmm. Because if the elites are so uh, flagrant, uh, you know, it doesn't seem like these officials think that there's any problem with doing that. So it, le it lends a lot of fuel to, to conspiracy theory. That's a practical outcome. And yeah, we, like it is a struggle getting people to follow these rules. It is incredibly destructive to have leaders just ignoring them like this. And just the hubris, I guess they didn't think that the media would ask them about that. The other problem is like the question of social cohesion. Social cohesion is a really delicate and ephemeral kind of concept. But this whole idea that we're all in this together and we need to be all in this together. We all need to be on the same page in order to to make effective changes and sacrifices in our society um, in order to combat this disease. Like that's a very, very delicate thing. And when you start engaging in these types of blatantly hypocritical, extremely problematic behaviors, you start to break that. And I think that there are going to be consequences to the, the, the damage that this virus has done to social cohesion broadly. And this is going to be the scandal that makes that 10 times worse than it needed to be. You know, I'll credit the Globe and Mail, um, among others, for pursuing this. I think it's exactly what the press should be doing. But I do note something that somebody emailed to me. An earlier piece during the pandemic this past summer in the Globe, six international and exotic destinations welcoming Canadian tourists this fall. I'll quote from the piece by uh, Adam Bisbee. Practical considerations aside, the fall of 2020 is shaping up to offer unprecedented globe-trotting opportunities to Canadians who are willing to overlook the federal government's globe-spanning non-essential travel advisory. So the Globe and Mail literally gave us like a, a list of hotspots and bargains and, and techniques for ignoring the government's advisory not to do this. You know, uh, it's a big newspaper. They do different things. And, uh, you know, I don't know what the people in the lifestyle sections and the service journalism travel sections of these papers like. What are they supposed to do <laughs> throughout all yeah, of this? Exactly. Like, it's the same as a sport. What does a sports journalist do right now? I don't yeah. even know. Like, I don't know. We're, we're covering video games. That's all there's left. You know? Yeah. I know that this is playing out across parties and across Canada. You know, there are politicians from, from you know every party who have been caught doing this. But in Alberta... There's the specificity to what's playing out. Oh, there's some pitchforks getting gathered in Alberta. It's amazing. I haven't seen this kind of anger for four or five years in Alberta. It's, it's been something to watch. I think something like nine government officials, including MLAs and I think one or two cabinet ministers, were caught out of the country. And a couple of UCP staffers, all of them were, were United Conservative Party. NDP, they saw this coming. They didn't know. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The NDP actually demonstrated some caucus discipline. It was like, you know, it was like, you leave the country, your ass is mine. They were smart. But apparently the UCP was not so much. And what amazes me is that the anger about this in Alberta in particular is white hot intensity. People are 
pissed. And like, it's cross-partisan pissed off too, right? It's not even just like, oh, it's it's the NDP, it's the usual sort of lefties who are angry at the UCP. No, no. Like, people to the right of Genghis Khan are like, burn these fuckers down. So I thought that you had people on the right who were applauding civil disobedience against the uh, the lockdown. Firstly, let's stop pretending that quote unquote, the right is a monolith. It isn't, right? Like there is a section of the right that uh, thinks that COVID's a scam and thinks it's all a conspiracy and has issues against the lockdown, particularly connected to the small business community. Mm-hmm. But even that group are like, okay, but you have imposed these fines on us. You have locked us down. You have advised us not to travel. And you're now flouting your own rules. That's hypocritical. So like those people are on board with with being angry. And then the rest of the conservatives just just for a lot of different reasons, just don't have time for this. I want to uh, read this one story from um, the Post Media paper up in Fort McMurray. This was also in Post Media. I mean, all Post Media stories run across their, their network, but it was changed. Fort McMurray Wood Buffalo MLA Tanny Yao is one of several MLAs who traveled outside the country during the holiday break and has been unreachable. We're not even sure where in Mexico he is, said the DCOM, Director of Communications for the UCP at the time. He later turned up, Jen, and the story that got changed was weird. He said he made himself unreachable during his vacation because of a stressful year passing his private member's bill, which allows private companies to pay Albertans for their blood and plasma. It's a controversial thing whether or not you should commercialize uh, the collection of blood and plasma. And uh, Tanya Yao said, I've endured abuse and slander in social and mainstream media over my private member's bill, which they misconstrued. I just wanted to disconnect and clear my head after this last year. Back in November, he accused the Alberta NDP and the healthcare adv- advocacy groups, Bloodwatch and Friends of Medicare, of one day harvesting organs from people without their yeah. consent. Yeah. So like, I don't think that any of those changes are uh, flattering to uh, Tani Yao in any way. My, <laughs> so, suspicion, my suspicion is just like they updated the story when they actually got comment. That's all I think happened. There. I have to disclose, I know the woman who founded Bloodwatch and she's constantly trying to harvest my organs when I'm not paying attention. So One of the reasons why in Alberta people are particularly angry about this is because Alberta had the highest rates of compliance over the holidays of any other province. Something like 68% of Albertans um, avoided spending Christmas with their families Yeah, um, compared to something like 52% of the rest of the country. That's what this comes down to. There, there are grandparents who have not seen their new grandchildren and then these motherfuckers yeah. are going off. Yeah, and I'm, yeah you know, precisely. Let's just close this off. Let, let's say their names. I'm going to run through this quickly. This is where it's at so far. Oh, yeah. In Ontario, Rod Phillips, Kamal Kara, David Sweet. In Alberta, uh, politicians and staffers, why not? Uh, Tracy, is it Allard or Allard? It's Tracy Allard, but also the reason why we're going to point out Tracy Allard deserves some particular condemnation is because she was actually the uh, cabinet minister who was charged with overseeing vaccine rollout. Excellent. Well done. Jeremy Nixon, Jason Stephen from the Treasury Board, Pat Wren, photos of him in a Mexican cave wishing people a Merry Christmas, Tanya Fur, Tanya Yao. James Huckabee, Jason Kenney's chief of staff, traveled to the UK. I'm, I'm a little bit more reluctant to sort of be too bad to staffers. I'm not. Uh, two press secretaries who deleted their social media accounts. Uh, they vacationed together in Hawaii. Michael Forian, press secretary for Alberta's Minister of Education, and Eliza Snyder. Alberta Conservative MP Ron Leipart. Leipart. Leipert. Hey, we can get municipal here. Uh, Nenshi's chief of staff, Devery Corbin, an administrative assistant who was not named. They went independently to the Aloha State. NDP's Nikki Ashton. You know, a lot of people think that she's getting a, um, a raw deal here because she went to visit an ailing family member in Greece. It's possible some of these other names here have good excuses as well. I'm just going to name them all. Also in Manitoba, Senator Don Plett in Quebec. P. 
Pierre Arcand, Yuri Chassin, Samir Zuberi, Alexandra Mendes, Patricia Latanzio, Lynn Bissett in Saskatchewan, Joe Hargrave, Corrections Minister Christine Tell. That's where we're at so far. Jen, a lot of them still haven't answered. By now, if you didn't travel outside of the country, you have been pretty quick. To, you told you the press. Probably, you should probably be, be making a, a bit of a statement about how you enjoyed your Christmas holiday in a small family gathering at home and what you had for dinner. That's what I want to hear. Yeah. I don't buy that there are a lot of politicians who just haven't gotten around to letting the Globe and Mail and others know that, no, 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 it's, it's cool. Uh, I was in Canada over the holidays. So I was in Canada over the holidays. Were you in Canada over the holidays, Jesse? <laughs> I was in Canada over the... I feel like a sucker for being in Canada over the holidays. Yeah, apparently Hawaii must have had some amazing deals on, so... You know, you don't want to, like, resort to cliches and say a pox on all of their houses in this age of the new pox. Let me be the bad guy for once. I'll wish the pox on their houses. A pox on all of your houses. This episode is brought to you by AG1. Listen, taking care of your health is not always easy, but it should at least be simple. That is why for months now, I start every day by drinking AG1. I take a scoop of this green powder, I mix it in a canister with water, shake it up, and I drink it. I get hydrated and I get energized and focused and ready to take on the day knowing that I have vitamins, minerals pre and probiotics and a lot more. These are things that science tells us we need. They are also things that I don't necessarily get every day outside of my AG1. Listen, if there's one product that I'm gonna recommend that will help you elevate your health, it's AG1. And that is why I have been partnered up with them for so long. If you wanna take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1, try it now, and you'll get a free welcome kit that includes a shaker bottle, canister, a metal scoop, along with five free travel packs. You'll get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3 and K2 along with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. That is drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. Check it out. Jen, it's duly noted time. You and I have something in common to duly note today. Do we? The end of your run hosting our politics show, Oppo. The end of Sandy Garasino's run as co-host. The end, in fact, of Oppo's run we're not going to make any more oppo without the two of you. We are still going to publish a Canadian politics podcast on that feed. It will be a totally different show with totally different hosts. We're still figuring it out. I'll have more news for everybody soon. But for now, I want to duly note, Jen, how good oppo was. The point of the show has always been to inform me about Canadian, well, inform everybody about Canadian politics without boring people. And uh, I think that's something that the show consistently achieved. It's something you did with Justin Ling. It's something you and Sandy have always accomplished. I always learn stuff that I didn't know before. And I never get that power in politics at issue panel uh, question period feeling of like eating my vegetables. So that's all. I just want to note my appreciation to you and Sandy and, and fine to Justin Ling as well. And of course, to your producers, Tiffany Lamb and David Crosby and Kevin Sexton. Thanks for Oppo. Well, let me take your appreciation and return it. You know, Oppo, I think, had a three-year run, and it was a really great experience. I mean, you know, Will, for me, that, you know, audio is not my first love. I'm a, I'm a writer at heart. And I thought it was just a fabulous, fun time. I enjoyed working with everybody at the Canada Land staff, so it was a really good experience. But, you know, I think the show just kind of naturally hit the end of its run, and, you know, show's do that. It was funny because you called me to say, hey, I think it's time to retire Oppo. And I was like, oh, yeah, no, I was going to call you like two or three weeks ago to have this exact <laughs> conversation because we both kind of kind of came to the same conclusion independently that it was just we just kind of reached the end. And that's that's OK. 
I spoke to Sandy. She felt exactly the same way. It was one of those situations where no one was surprised. Everyone was like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Some of the times when you and Sandy were interviewing somebody and it was just like really thrilling radio. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, the tag team effect. But it was just always informative. So you should ask me what I'm going to do next. Well, you're already doing it. Well, I'm starting to already do it. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously I've launched the line, which is uh, I've gone to Substack, which apparently everybody is doing now. You know, if you are interested in following New writers, interesting commentary, and the stuff that I'm coming out with usually every week. Go to theline.substack.com. We'll see where that goes. And I'm also working on a book proposal. What's it about? Satan. (laughs) Uh, It's going to be fucking great. (laughs) We're going to talk more about that later. The line is good, and there's a vacuum to be filled. I mean, I kind of want to fill that space where it's, it's not crazy conservative. It's really smart, thoughtful, conservative. And, you know, I want to have challenges to our perspectives all the time on there. I mean, we have a section already called Flipping the Line, where if you're angry about something that somebody here writes, I will pay you to write a rebuttal (laughs) and feature it prominently. So it's good fun. I mean, we're still very much in a startup phase. That's how a lot of things start. Yeah. So we'll see what happens. I'm pleased. I'm excited. In a post-oppo era, you know, managing the line part time and and working on a a book is probably where I'm going to be for the next year or two. Yeah. Well, listen, you've always... uh challenged my conceptions about things and I think the conceptions of our listeners and that's some people will push back against that in our audience but it is always welcome here you're always welcome here thank you thank you duly noted Jen what do you have to duly note Uh, I would like to duly note uh, the fact that America is burning yeah not literally burning just yet I mean we're recording this just as nightfall is falling in Washington DC and I think that we have yet to see what's going to happen For me, there's a couple of scenarios as to how this plays out, and I don't see many of them good. It's possible that that this is just a bunch of hooliganism, and it's going to die down, and it's going to go away, but I'm a bit nervous. I have to admit, Jesse, like, I kind of thought naively that we were out of the woods on January 1st. Like, once once 2020 was over, that things were going to kind of get better. I thought, like, I did figure that there was going to be some violence after uh, the American election, but I, I had thought that if it was going to happen, it would have already have happened by now. I completely didn't see this coming in, though. I, I mean, I was surprised that there wasn't violence earlier. And then when there mm-hmm. wasn't, I thought that was it. And um, mm-hmm. obviously uh, a good deal of planning went into this. Mobs don't just like, hey, let's have a mob. This, this is something that came out of QAnon and all various corners of the Internet. I know there are a lot of journalists who, who have been kind of embedded in those forums. I kind of wish now that I had paid better. Yeah, uh, I, I wonder if they were warning about this. That'll be an interesting question. So the reason why this is happening today for people who may not be aware is that uh, January 6th is traditionally the day when the electors are certified by the Senate and the Congress. Normally, this is just like a symbolic technicality. Um, However, this year, because uh, Donald Trump has been stoking these conspiracy theories about the illegitimacy of um, some of the votes and some of the elections in swing states, we were expecting several senators at the very least to object to some of the electors, which if they had garnered enough support within the Senate and the House to succeed, could have potentially put us into this wild territory where we wouldn't have had a good sense of how to proceed because it, it, it that particular scenario just never really covered the Constitution as far as I'm aware. But uh, that didn't happen, which is kind of what I thought was the most plausible scenario for today. And instead something even more wild happened and people were just like, nah, fuck the democratic process. Let's break into the Capitol building and um, stop the certification. Yeah. I mean, I think it's also relevant that uh, yesterday when this all occurred, uh, the Senate uh, went to the Democrats in in Georgia. I I, I will say that I think far too much credibility is given to the idea that these were 
protesters or, or whatever you want to call them. I, I don't call them protesters, but what their beef was, was that they believe the election was stolen. I, I think that a good number of them don't even care whether it's true or not, whether it was stolen. The timing of this is part of it. There's a, a lot of organized joyful chaos, and this is just a, a you know, a vulgar display of power um, by people who still have enough numbers to cause a lot of trouble. And then the images that were kind of just like hypothetical images, you know, this QAnon shaman in like in the Senate, like the, the images are, are, are stunning and the images are what are going to last. And the images are, are dramatic and they and they make me feel afraid and uh, they, they are succeeding at their intended purpose that this could happen. These are things that people are noting all over the place that what BLM faced with uh, militarized law enforcement, not letting them get any anywhere close the, the disparity in those reactions. It's also very clear that law enforcement was not prepared for this. They were prepared for BLM to do something like this, which is why they came out in force. And then a bunch of these, I mean, it's got to be said, white protesters, which initially it seemed like the like the protesters, were, when they were for, at first protesters, and I think you're quite right, we should no longer call them protesters. They're now mobs, uh, an insurrection, whatever you want to call them. But at the beginning of the day, it looked like these guys didn't have a lot of numbers. They were kind of pathetic. They were putting up a giant cross. And then it looks like something happened where like a tipping point hit and these guys just stormed the Capitol. And then since then, it looks like everybody's been caught totally flat footed. Well, as as we're speaking, we're recording uh, Wednesday afternoon. Things are de-escalating and, and law enforcement is succeeding to, to clear some of these buildings. So we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know what's going to happen over the night. I will say about the media's response and about some of the things you're saying, I'm done. Like, we need to smarten the fuck up. Uh, I, I admit I was not watching the Canadian coverage. I watched the American coverage when things happen in America. It's better. But um, Kathleen Newman Bremming, uh, who is a Canadian journalist and an editor at Refinery29, uh, was watching CBC, and CBC has their correspondent in Washington. As you'll hear, the CBC's correspondent is like out there before the violence interviewing these like nice white people uh, who are there to protest at the time, it was thought. And then later, when they stormed the Capitol, this was broadcast. Definitely not the sort of people you would expect to, to storm Congress today. They were definitely not the sort of people you would expect to storm Congress. Fuck, man. They've been saying they're going to do this shit. Trump's been inciting them to do this stuff. It's four years of this. We have to smarten up. They are exactly what they tell us they are, and they proved it today. Not everybody. Yeah. C CTV um, had Sandy Hudson on, who was on the air, talking about how we should not be calling these people protesters. So, you know, I think Canadian media is doing their best. We were taken by surprise by this. Us and apparently Washington, D.C. police were taken by surprise by this, and perhaps there's no excuse for any of it. But... You're right. These people were protesters right up until the moment that they stormed the fucking Capitol building and then you're something else. That's domestic terrorism at this point. All of this is predictable. CNN, CNN, um, the, the calls, everyone calling, uh, Biden calling, Trump needs to um, record a message telling them to stand down. So, yeah, he like just like jerks off a message telling them to go home. The emotional thrust of the message is we were robbed. You're so special. It's 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 the exact same gasoline. And frankly, CNN and every other news network should not have aired it. Uh, the fact that he says the words go home, let's not be violent. It's very clear his meaning. It's the same stuff that led to this in the first place. And we need to smarten the fuck up already. Yeah, Twitter actually did stop engagement on this. That was good. I mean, I mean, you, you and I are both pretty close to free speech absolutists, but I mean, you and I, I think, both draw a line at incitement to violence. And when there is a violent mob breaking into the Capitol building and you've got a president saying, still, we were robbed, we won in a landslide, you don't have to, like, f come right out and say, 
you know, smash some heads in order to be inciting people. I think I think that that video meets the the standard for incitement to violence, to my mind. Yeah. But I don't, I like, should it not have been aired at all? I don't know, probably not, but I, that's a... Not, that's a, not, it's uh, a newsroom conversation. You say, okay, let's paraphrase the video. Was the video live or did they get an advance on they it? They had like an a- advance. So CNN watched it first and they had to make a call. It's not, it's not a hard news call. It's not a hard one. You watch it, you say, okay, there, there's, there's on a balance of probabilities, there's more incitement to violence and chaos than there is in de-escalation. And then you could just be like, Trump called on people to go home while continuing to make unsubstantiated That's claims right. of blah, 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 blah. Okay, I could see, yeah. It's not difficult. I could see that. I wasn't watching CNN. I was watching CBS and they did qualify the statements. They were like, Immediately That's- after the video on CNN, they said, okay, now we just play, you know, they, they obviously had, this was how they were going to deal with it. They were in, but like, if they think that what, the, what their, you know, talking head says after Trump has any bearing yeah. on, on the yeah. Trump masses, they're, they're, they're still kidding themselves enough. Yeah. Duly noted. I got one more. Okay, go. I want to duly note this piece uh, by journalist Davide Mastracci. Um, he's written for Canada Land before. He's got a site called Passage, and he published a piece earlier this week titled Breaking Down Family Connections in Canadian Journalism that Caused Quite a Stir. A lot of journalists did not appreciate this, which is, he says at the beginning of the piece, this is not to impugn any of the journalists listed here, but a lot of Canadian journalists are related to other Canadian journalists, and here's a list of Including them. Including you, Jesse. Including me, I got a thesis. Um, I'm no, uh, but I'll I'll out myself here. But you know, it goes on to just tell you things that we all know: John K. Barber K., but uh, other connections that are less well known. And there was the responses were like, I'll, I'll just read some of them here. Emma McIntosh, who's on the list, she said, "Oh, good, some guy has decided to imply that I only got a job in journalism because of who my dad is, and didn't bother asking me for comment." Alex Boudelier responded to that saying, well, maybe if his dad, referring to Davide, well, maybe if his dad was in journalism, he'd know to try to contact the people he writes about. So people kind of mocking uh, his his process here. Ben Spur of the Toronto Star questioned why this was even newsworthy to list who was related to who. Emily Sanger of the CBC, is it so weird kids going into the same business as their parents? Peter Scowen of the Globe and Mail sarcastically wrote, everyone knows that journalism is the only business in which children follow in their parents' footsteps. So a chorus of disapproval of people who felt like this was um, unfair and amateurishly done. I think it's absolutely fine to publish a list of who's related to who in Canadian journalism. And I think it's necessary. And the reason why it's necessary, as you point out, Jen, is because there is an uncommon level of interconnection. I can tell you that because Alex Boudelier is married to my wife's cousin. I can tell you that because one of the people <laughs> in that list is my cousin, Emma Title. And she had a legitimate beef because the piece had an error in it saying that her dad, my uncle Jay Title, was an editor at the Toronto Star where Emma is now a columnist. And that sort of like does carry with it a suggestion that maybe he got her the job. He was never an editor of the Toronto Star. He was an editor at Toro, the short-lived men's magazine, which is a very different thing to be the editor of. Can I play with this idea without committing to a position on it? I guess, yeah. Okay, so... On one hand, yeah, I think it's perfectly valid to examine the dynastic connections within journalism. I mean, I came into journalism, you know, I was raised by a single mom in the West Coast and I, you know, landed at Ryerson and I came into journalism totally fresh of any kind of family connections and built my career up from there. And like, I think that if you are coming from that perspective, 
it's pretty easy to note that journalism in Canada is very cliquey. Mm-hmm. Um, not only is it sort of cliquey in terms of its its family connections, it's a bit cliquey in terms of its politics. It's certainly cliquey in terms of its geography. I think a lot of people would observe that it's cliquey in terms of its racial connections as well. And I think all of these things are kind of interconnected. So I think that it's valid to to explore that and explore how that actually works and what the dynamics at play are. Or just document it. And I, or document it. I think it's okay to sort of like point out and name people in that context. Where I guess I kind of got a little bit tweaky about this particular piece is that it didn't really feel like he was doing that. It felt like what he was doing was just listing a lot of people, including, frankly, a lot of junior people in the industry, and subjecting them to potentially harassment and abuse and not providing any kind of real structural analysis there. So I don't think it's wrong to list people and their their family connections in, in this industry, given what this industry is. I'm not sure that that's the way I would have gone about doing it. It's not a mystery that you would have familial connections in a, a, a small, close-knit a community like Canadian journalism. That's that's not a mystery to me. But I think you need to explore how and why those connections happen. And I think you need to explore the implications of those connections. I don't think it's good enough to just basically be like, this junior person at this is related to that person I've never heard of. Wow, wow. Otherwise, it just sort of comes across as like a bit of a bitter hit piece from someone who's trying to find excuses for his own lack of success. I mean, that's fine. And he'll take that hit, right? He'll take that hit and, and he'll he'll like, look, look, I relate to this guy because I've published similar things in the past. But the point is, we can't have those types of more in-depth conversations if we don't have the, the basic information. And I think that it's wise for him to take a neutral position to say, hey, I'm just I'm just leaving this here. These are public people. Right. These are there's no secrets I'm unveiling here. I'm just giving you a map. Was that a neutral position? Because I didn't read the disclaimer as neutral. I read the disclaimer as just like, I know I'm going to get shit for doing this. So I'm going to put a disclaimer on top. I, I take him at his word that he's saying this is just like, I don't think he excluded anyone or was was playing favorites. It was just a list of who's related to who. He should have called everybody for sure. And I think he will now. My point is like, I, I, I look, I, I report things about journalists and they are very thin skinned and they always will go after my process or me or, oh, media criticism is great. I just wish we had a better person doing it. And the truth is, it's just that people feel attacked when they see their names in print like that. A lot of the people are saying, oh, this implies that I didn't earn my position. This suggests that I'm a nepotistic hire. We are finally starting to have a wider conversation about how representation sucks in Canadian journalism. And we're finally starting to recognize in a wider sense how systems are the the determiners, how class systems and networks determine a lot of power, influence, and position in our society, and it is necessary to have the, the facts and not take it so personally. My Uncle Jay gave me my first break. I, I had done a bunch of stuff before. See, the, 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 the reflex from me be like, well, no, I actually published a newspaper before that, and I had been paid for a few articles. No, I earned it. We have to accept, like, I had a big leg up because I had people in the media in my family. That's okay. I, I, I'm coming clean with it, you know? If we can get past that point, this is a reference for anybody like yourself trying to break in and saying, hey, how come I'm on the outside of some of these, you know, these promotions and these connections and who's socializing and who's getting opportunities? Oh, now I see. I think I would I would be up for more of this. Who went to school with who? Who's married to who? When I worked at the CBC, like my boss was married to somebody at the Globe and Mail and her boss was married to somebody at the Globe and Mail. Like, like those networks matter. But not all these networks are familial networks. And I would argue that the networks that matter are, are actually less about the familial networks and more about the social networks. One of the things when I was just starting out is that I came to realize is that it was as much about 
you know, who someone was going to go have a beer with as it was, you know, what kind of work were you producing or, or, or a better way to put it was that the type of work you would have the opportunity to produce early on in your career was sort of interconnected with what kind of social networks you you could run in. Imagine somebody handed you a guide to like, here's here's who's who in the zoo. If I could write a guide for myself at 36 and, you know, go back in time and be like, look, this is how you need to behave and this is how you need to get ahead in journalism and could give that self when I was 21, that would have been very useful and helpful to me. I don't think that this is that guide. I don't have a problem with exploring some of the dynastic connections and how then how why they happen. I think that some analysis needs to be done there. And also, I don't think that the dynastic connections are the predominant issue in journalism. Yeah, no, let's keep going. Davide, keep going. Who went to school together at Upper Canada College? Who was in Katamavik uh, together? G- give me give me all of it. Yeah, who, who's, who's going to the Liberal Forums? Who's Canada 2020? Yes. Yeah, duly noted. Jen, uh, Julian Assange is back in the news, and I want to talk about Julian Assange through the lens of uh, his relationship uh, to the media and what the media think about him and how they've been covering him throughout the years. Let's give people some background here. He's back in the news because earlier this week, a British judge blocked the extradition of WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange to the U.S. His lawyers argued a bunch of freedom of the press arguments as to how he was essentially being punished for doing journalism, for uh, uncovering state secrets. And he was uh, essentially being persecuted by the government that he exposed. The judge threw out all of those arguments, but blocked his extradition on mental health grounds that uh, this supermax prison they want to send him to, he would not be safe there due to a risk of suicide. You know, this is like 10 years into the saga of Julian Assange since he first exposed U.S. military secrets and has been living like a hunted animal ever since. And I note that it is not the same, like, you know, the, the Canadian press just ran some wire stories about this, where, you know, it's not the white hot, like the, the early days when Assange and then later Snowden, this whole new way of getting information, these people who are coming from outside of journalism and, and revealing things that like journalism wasn't even close to getting their hands on. And the ways in which the press focused on the personalities, including me, Jen, I was certainly among the journalists who I think, you know, made the mistake of focusing on the personal side of things. And I, I had fun with it. I was uh, I jumped on the bandwagon. I I called Assange uh, when I was writing for McLean's as, as a tech journalist and on, on my show Search Engine. I called Assange uh, an epic donkey. I, I called him a fame whore when he was doing that show for like Sputnik for like Russian state TV. I called him an albino nomad with bad hygiene. I, you know, like I was right there with Christy Blatchford. She wrote that he looks like a madman. Um, she was like repeating these unverified claims from the Times of London that he had smeared feces on the wall, uh, rollerbladed up and down the halls of the Ecuadorian embassy and had all these celebrity guests. Just like this, this total ad hominem attack. And this carried through to U.S. cable news on on Fox News, a commentator uh, like this was broadcast by the top cable news channel in the States uh, that that Assange should be illegally shot, illegally shoot the son of a bitch. U.S. Senator Joe Lieberman called for Assange to be tried for treason against the U.S. government. Jen, he's not an American citizen. He can't be tried for treason. 
CBC on the National. We ran a piece by uh, Peter uh, Biesterfeld who wrote this false report. The CBC on the National wrote that Assange um, sought refuge at the Ecuadorian embassy on a completely unrelated case because he'd been accused of sexual assault in Sweden. That's not true. That's not why he was in the uh, embassy. Uh, in fact, he made himself available to Swedish law enforcement and those charges uh, were, were later dropped. So it goes on and on. I, I don't think that when the Canadian media was bothering to cover him, I don't think he, he the focus was right and I don't think he got a fair shake. And then you look at this most recent news cycle and most of the stories, it's like we're done with him, like it's just an old celebrity story and um, it's just this dutiful picking up wire stories for most of the coverage. The Globe did have their correspondent uh, write up the, 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 the fact that his extradition was blocked. But the, the, the press freedom angle has almost disappeared from the coverage. Um, it, it's given pretty short attention, even as Reporters Without Borders is, is uh, taking his case and trying to remind people that this actually is about laws that could be used against any number of other journalists. Let's also acknowledge that he was also running a Russian propaganda outlet. That strikes me as more pertinent to the issues at hand today than, than the personal attacks that he suffered back then. Maybe they do and maybe they don't, but he's not he's not charged with the Russian stuff. No, but he is, he's, he's being charged by the U.S. Um, for violating the Espionage Act. So right. his actual intent here actually counts for something. Oh, yes. That, I think, is what's gotten lost in this. They have this, like, 100-year-old act that's rarely applied, the, the Espionage Act, where they say, no, he's he's no journalist. And let's, like, fuck whether he's a journalist or not. Was he? Wh what was he doing? Because you don't have to be a journalist to do journalism. It's an act. So when he w was in touch with a source, with Chelsea Manning, and Chelsea Manning wanted to get information to Julian Assange, and this question of, like, well, was he an accomplice in stealing this information? What he was doing... Let's remember what he exposed, footage of U.S. helicopters murdering a journalist, among others, mm -hmm. that we never would have known about. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I, I think WikiLeaks actually exposed more than a million documents by the end. Like, it, 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 it became a clearinghouse of a lot of, a lot of some useful and some not useful stuff, I think is putting it mildly. Absolutely, because their approach was very different, right? There's all these different ways you can judge is like that journalists are fond of figuring out different ways. Is this a good journalist or a bad journalist? Is this, in fact, a journalist or not a journalist? What do we think of their ethics? What do we think of their practice, the, the way that they do it? A journalist wouldn't have published documents that expose the names and, and, and addresses of teenage rape victims, for example, as the AP found that WikiLeaks did. There are some solid uh, complaints about how he acted. And then there's some, there's some controversy about that, too, because he did, in fact, contact American authorities and said, can you help me? This is what journalists do. They say, I am going to be publishing these classified documents. I don't want to publish the names of people who it might endanger. Can you tell me who would be endangered and help me redact them? And they didn't they didn't work with him on that. But that's now putting the onus of journalistic responsibility onto the, a government agency. It's, it's our duty. But that is how we practice when we report those things, right? We don't go to the government and say, go through my trove of documents and help me redact them. Are you sure? Well, you shouldn't be. We say, hey, I have this trove of documents. This is what I've discovered. Do you want to comment on them? It, so I don't know. There's, there, there's a lot of stuff here that it, we start to get into gray zones. Like this is, I think, the trap that everybody fell into. I do think that people who cover national security absolutely speak to their contacts in government and say, we are moving ahead with the story. We don't want to endanger anyone. Will you help us? And you can do so off the record, but we want to remove some names. And, and that happens all the time. I am happy with judging a journalist by what did they inform me about accurately that I wouldn't have otherwise known. Canadians know that after Canada 
refused to join the invasion of Iraq, a high-ranking Canadian official was secretly promising the Americans clandestine military support. We know that because, uh, mm-hmm. what it, call him a journalist or not, that is a, a, a fucking like, barn burner of a story a great scoop. that we know. Yeah. Yeah. So do we claim him as one of ours and do we stand up for him when he is essentially a political prisoner who, like, that is what they're going after him for. They can call it what they want, but but they're going after him for things that, that any kind of mainstream reporter might have done if they had a source like Chelsea Manning. They're going after him because of, of the embarrassment that he caused and uh, as a warning to anybody else who might do the same thing. I'm trying to dig myself out of my own sense of regret here that I feel like I... I know that there was a campaign to tar him personally, and I think it influenced me and it influenced my coverage. That's fair. And, and I think that that's true. And I think that the campaign that focused on a personality or on personal hits was unfair. But firstly, I think the question of do we claim him as a, one of our own is probably the wrong frame, because I think that that just gets us lost into this debate. The better thing to do is just say, well, look, they're, they're, they're trying to extradite him under the uh, Espionage Act. I mean, it's one thing to say that our duty as journalists is to speak truth to power. That starts to ring hollow if in speaking truth to power, you're just serving another power. And this is where Assange starts to get really complicated. I'm not talking about the personal tax. I'm talking about the degree to which he was operating in concert with Russia with the explicit intent to sort of undermine American national security, that goes way beyond what I think most journalists would be willing to connect themselves with. That's not what he was indicted for. Well, wasn't he not indicted for the Espionage Act? Shall we look, Shall we pull up that particular indictment? As I understand it, his relationship with Russia and the controversy there came after the Iraq uh, and Afghanistan leaks. Yes, that's... I believe that's correct, but it does sort of start to raise some real questions. Like it's it's one thing to be a journalist to say, "Hey, I got this scoop of incredibly damaging information, and I believe it needs to be out in the public, and I'm going to put it out in the public." And it's another thing to sort of wind up, you know, hosting a Russian propaganda outlet. Like you know, what I mean, like that's that that starts to make all of this incredibly murky for me, and it starts to be. Uh, why I sort of think that this probably should be hashed out in a fair and neutral court to sort of help us delineate that line between journalism and espionage, because I do think that there is a difference. But you're conflating two courts. There's the court that that is indicting him, which I think will look at specific allegations with regards to the original leaks. Yes. And then there's the court of not public opinion, but professional opinion. And I think it's the Russia connection that made journalists wash their hands of him. And that's not what he's facing charges for. The professional court can't jail him. So, and nor should we be able to. I don't want the power to jail him. I'm talking about the, the, the U.S. court. It almost seems to me like this would have been much, much better if he had just, you know, gone to the U.S. right at the beginning and we could have just hashed all this out because I do think that there is a real journalistic press freedom here that is potentially under threat if you're extending the definition of espionage too widely. But at the same time, I don't want journalism to give cover to spies. Like, it, I don't I, I don't think that that is a good outcome either. So there's a there's there's a whole bunch of gray area here. And I don't know what the right answer is. There's nuance upon nuance. I mean, the idea like, oh, he should have just gone and faced the music. He's facing up to 175 years in prison in this in this atrocious supermax prison. Like people are actually saying that extrajudicial measures should be taken to assassinate him. Well, nobody who actually has the power to do that is saying that I should hope. But if you look at the last 10 years of his life, this guy's been, you know, stuck in an Ecuadorian embassy. He's been, you know, he's now in a, a, a maximum security, you know, UK prison. And his, his legal end battles are non-ending. I mean, from my perspective, he's chosen the harder path for himself by 
not going forward with the espionage indictment. There is a fair question about whether or not he could get a fair shake in the U.S. judicial system. I grant that. But let's also acknowledge that there are lots of powerful interests within the U.S. that have a vested interest in making sure that press freedoms are applied as broadly as possible. And there's a natural alliance there that could be taken advantage of. So, uh, you know, I... eh. It's tricky. It's tricky. And to return to my original point, I feel like those um, civil institutions that I think would not hesitate to stand up for if this was like a Robert Fife-like character or Stephen Chase of the Globe Mail being charged with espionage by a foreign government, I think you would have a chorus of support from uh, every civil liberty organization and press freedom and pen. All of these groups would be would be uh, unified. You know, like Reporters Without Borders is just like, look, they're not engaging with any of the stuff that we just talked about except for just the charges themselves. And uh, is this fair given what he did? And they're standing up for him as somebody who who is being persecuted executed for an act or acts of journalism. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm voicing up uh, maybe to you know, right some wrongs here, but I, I feel like that's the only that's the only legitimate position for journalists to take. I think that's right. But I also think at the same time, given the legal situation um, that he's facing, the best option for him is to be is 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 to be tried in a fair court with every single press freedom advocate you know, submitting on his behalf. Like, I think that that's probably the best realistic outcome that he can expect. Yes, if that fair court was available and he had the support of those groups, I would agree. Jen, that is uh, Canada Land Shortcuts for today. All right. Well, thanks for having me. Thanks for doing this. Uh, everybody, you can email me at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read everything you send. We're on Twitter at CanadaLandJen. I'm not going to ask where people can find you. Where can they subscribe to The Line? They can go to theline.substack.com. Our website is canadaland.com, and you can find uh, the best and the worst tweets of 2020 listed. Jen, you and I are both on that list. Oh, dear. This episode is produced by Tiffany Lamb with additional production by Kevin Sexton. Our managing editor is Andrea Schmidt. Our theme music is by So Called. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at CFUV.ca. If you like what we do and you'd like to receive ad-free versions of all of our podcasts, please support us. Just click the link in the show notes or go to canadaland.com slash join. Mm-hmm.